Chapter Four, Part One of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One, by Charles Mackay. Chapter Four: The Alchemists or Searchers for the Philosopher's Stone and the Water of Life, Part One, Mercury, Locator, The Mischief a Secret Any of Them Know, Above the Consuming of Coals and Drawing of Uskabah, Howsoever They May Pretend Under the Specious Names of Geber, Arnold, Lully, or Bombast of Hohenheim, To Commit Miracles in Art and Treason Against Nature, As If the Title of Philosopher, That Creature of Glory, Were to Be Fetched Out of a Furnace, I Am Their Crude and Their Sublimate, their precipitate and their unctions, their male and their female, sometimes their hermaphrodite, what they list to style me. They will calcine you a grave matron, as it might be a mother of the maids, and spring up a young virgin out of her ashes, as fresh as a phoenix. Lay you an old courtier on the coals, like a sausage or a bloat herring, and after they have broiled him enough, blow a soul into him with a pair of bellows. See, they begin to muster again, and draw their forces out against me, the genius of the place defend me. Ben Johnson's Mask, Mercury Vindicated from the Alchemists. Dissatisfaction with his lot seems to be the characteristic of man in all ages and climates. So far, however, from being an evil, as at first might be supposed, it has been the great civilizer of our race, and has tended, more than anything else, to raise us above the condition of the brutes. But the same discontent which has been the source of all improvement has been the parent of no small progeny of follies and absurdities. To trace these latter is our present object. Vast as the subject appears, it is easily reducible within such limits as will make it comprehensible without being wearisome, and render its study both instructive and amusing. Three causes especially have excited the discontent of mankind, and by impelling us to seek for remedies for the irremediable, have bewildered us in a maze of madness and error. These are death, toil, and ignorance of the future, the doom of man upon this sphere, and for which he shews his antipathy by his love of life, his longing for abundance, and his craving curiosity to pierce the secrets of the days to come. The first has led many to imagine that they might find means to avoid death, or failing in this, that they might nevertheless so prolong existence as to reckon it by centuries instead of units. From this sprang the search, so long continued and still pursued, for the elixir vitae, or water of life, which has led thousands to pretend to it, and millions to believe in it. From the second sprang the search for the philosopher's stone, which was to create plenty by changing all metals into gold, and from the third the false sciences of astrology, divination, and their divisions of necromancy, chiromancy, augury, with all their train of signs, portents, and omens. In tracing the career of the erring philosophers, or the willful cheats, who have encouraged or preyed upon the credulity of mankind, it will simplify and elucidate the subject if we divide it into three classes. The first comprising alchemists, are those in general who have devoted themselves to the discovering of the philosopher's stone and the water of life. The second comprising astrologers, necromancers, sorcerers, geomancers, and all those who pretended to discover futurity. And the third consisting in the dealers in charms, amulets, filters, universal panacea-mongers, touchers for the evil, seventh sons of a seventh son, sympathetic powder-compounders, homeopathists, 
animal magnetizers, and all the motley tribe of quacks, empirics, and charlatans. But in narrating the career of such men, it will be found that many of them united several or all of the functions just mentioned, that the alchemist was a fortune-teller, or a necromancer, that he pretended to cure all maladies by touch or charm, and to work miracles of every kind. In the dark and early ages of European history this is more especially the case. Even as we advance to more recent periods, we shall find great difficulty in separating the characters. The alchemist seldom confined himself strictly to his pretended science, the sorcerer and necromancer to theirs, or the medical charlatan to his. Beginning with alchemy, some confusion of these classes is unavoidable, but the ground will clear for us as we advance. Let us not, in the pride of our superior knowledge, turn with contempt from the follies of our predecessors. The study of the errors into which great minds have fallen in the pursuit of truth can never be uninstructive. As the man looks back to the days of his childhood and his youth, and recalls to his mind the strange notions and false opinions that swayed his actions at that time, that he may wonder at them, so should society, for its edification, look back to the opinions which governed the ages fled. He is but a superficial thinker who would despise and refuse to hear of them merely because they are absurd. No man is so wise but that he may learn some wisdom from his past errors, either of thought or action, and no society has made such advances as to be capable of no improvement from the retrospect of its past folly and credulity. And not only is such a study instructive, he who reads for amusement only will find no chapter in the annals of the human mind more amusing than this. It opens out the whole realm of fiction, the wild, the fantastic, and the wonderful, and all the immense variety of things that are not and cannot be, but that have been imagined and believed. For more than a thousand years the art of alchemy captivated many noble spirits, and was believed in by millions. Its origin is involved in obscurity. Some of its devotees have claimed for it an antiquity coeval with the creation of man himself. Others, again, would trace it no further back than the time of Noah. Vincent de Beauvais argues, indeed, that all the antediluvians must have possessed a knowledge of alchemy, and particularly cites Noah as having been acquainted with the elixir vitae, or he could not have lived to so prodigious an age, and have begotten children when upwards of five hundred. Lenglet du Fresnoy, in his History of the Hermetic Philosophy, says, most of them pretended that Shem, or Chem, the son of Noah, was an adept in the art, and thought it highly probable that the words chemistry and alchemy are both derived from his name. Others say the art was derived from the Egyptians, amongst whom it was first founded by Hermes Trismegistus. Moses, who is looked upon as a first-rate alchemist, gained his knowledge in Egypt, but he kept it all to himself, and would not instruct the children of Israel in its mysteries. All the writers upon alchemy triumphantly cite the story of the golden calf in the thirty-second chapter of Exodus, to prove that this great lawgiver was an adept, and could make or unmake gold at his pleasure. It is recorded that Moses was so wrath with the Israelites for their idolatry, that he took the calf which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strewed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. This, say the alchemist, he never could have done had he not been in possession of the philosopher's stone. By no other means could he have made the powder of gold float upon the water. But we must leave this knotty point for the consideration of the adepts in the art, if any such there be, and come to more modern periods of its history. The Jesuit, Father Martini, in his Historia Sinica, says it was practiced by the Chinese two thousand five hundred years before the birth of Christ, but his assertion being unsupported is worth nothing. 
It would appear, however, that pretenders to the art of making gold and silver existed in Rome in the first centuries after the Christian era, and that when discovered they were liable to punishment as knaves and impostors. At Constantinople in the fourth century the transmutation of metals was very generally believed in, and many of the Greek ecclesiastics wrote treatises upon the subject. Their names are preserved, and some notice of their works given, in the third volume of Langlais du Fresnoy's History of the Hermetic Philosophy. Their notion appears to have been that all metals were composed of two substances, the one metallic earth, and the other a red inflammable matter, which they called sulphur. The pure union of these substances formed gold, but other metals were mixed with and contaminated by various foreign ingredients. The object of the philosopher's stone was to dissolve or neutralize all these ingredients, by which iron, lead, copper, and all metals would be transmuted into the original gold. Many learned and clever men wasted their time, their health, and their energies in this vain pursuit, but for several centuries it took no great hold upon the imagination of the people. The history of the delusion appears, in a manner, lost from this time till the eighth century, when it appeared amongst the Arabians. From this period it becomes easier to trace its progress. A master then appeared, who was long looked upon as the father of the science, and whose name is indissolubly connected with it, Geber. Of this philosopher who devoted his life to the study of alchemy, but few particulars are known. He is thought to have lived in the year 730. His true name was Abu Musa Jafar, to which was added Al-Sofi, or the Wise, and he was born at Huron in Mesopotamia. Some have thought he was a Greek, others a Spaniard, and others a prince of Hindustan, but of all the mistakes which have been made respecting him, the most ludicrous was that made by the French translator of Sprenger's History of Medicine, who thought from the sound of his name that he was a German, and rendered it as the Donateur, or Giver. No details of his life are known, but it is asserted that he wrote more than five hundred works upon the philosopher's stone and the water of life. He was a great enthusiast in his art, and compared the incredulous to little children shut up in a narrow room, without windows or aperture, who, because they saw nothing beyond, denied the existence of the great globe itself. He thought that a preparation of gold would cure all maladies, not only in man, but in the inferior animals and plants. He also imagined that all metals labored under disease, with the exception of gold, which was the only one in perfect health. He affirmed that the secret of the philosopher's stone had been more than once discovered, but that the ancient and wise men who had hit upon it would never, by word or writing, communicate it to men, because of their unworthiness and incredulity. Footnote. His sum of perfection or instructions to students to aid them in the laborious search for the stone and elixir has been translated into most of the languages of Europe. An English translation by a great enthusiast in alchemy, one Richard Russell, was published in London in 1686. The preface is dated eight years previously from the house of the alchemist at the Star in Newmarket, in Wapping, near the dock. His design in undertaking the translation was, as he informs us, to expose the false pretenses of the many ignorant pretenders to the science who abounded in his day. End footnote. But the life of Geber, though spent in the pursuit of this vain chimera, was not altogether useless. He stumbled upon discoveries which he did not seek, and science is indebted to him for the first mention of corrosive sublimate, the red oxide of mercury, nitric acid, and the nitrate of silver. For more than two hundred years after the death of Geber, 
the Arabian philosophers devoted themselves to the study of alchemy, joining with it that of astrology. Of these, the most celebrated was Al-Farabi. Al-Farabi flourished at the commencement of the tenth century, and enjoyed the reputation of being one of the most learned men of his age. He spent his life in travelling from country to country, that he might gather the opinions of philosophers upon the great secrets of nature. No danger dismayed him, no toil wearied him of the pursuit. Many sovereigns endeavoured to retain him at their courts, but he refused to rest until he had discovered the great object of his life, the art of preserving it for centuries, and of making gold as much as he needed. This wandering mode of life at last proved fatal to him. He had been on a visit to Mecca, not so much for religious as for philosophical purposes. When returning through Syria, he stopped at the court of the Sultan Sifet Dule, who was renowned as the patron of learning. He presented himself in his travelling attire in the presence of that monarch and his courtiers, and, without invitation, coolly sat himself down on the sofa beside the prince. The courtiers and wise men were indignant, and the sultan, who did not know the intruder, was at first inclined to follow their example. He turned to one of his officers, and ordered him to eject the presumptuous stranger from the room, but Al-Farabi, without moving, dared them to lay hands upon him, and turning himself calmly to the prince, remarked that he did not know who was his guest, or he would treat him with honour, not with violence. The sultan, instead of being still further incensed, as many potentates would have been, admired his coolness, and requesting him to sit still closer to him on the sofa, entered into a long conversation with him upon science and divine philosophy. All the court were charmed with the stranger. Questions for discussion were propounded, on all of which he shewed superior knowledge. He convinced every one who ventured to dispute with him, and spoke so eloquently upon the science of alchemy, that he was at once recognized as only second to the great Geber himself. One of the doctors present inquired whether a man who knew so many sciences was acquainted with music. Al-Farabi made no reply, but merely requested that a lute should be brought to him. The lute was brought, and he played such ravishing and tender melodies that all the court were melted into tears. He then changed his theme, and played air so sprightly that he set the grave philosophers, sultan and all, dancing as fast as their legs could carry them. He then sobered them again by a mournful strain, and made them sob and sigh as if broken-hearted. The sultan, highly delighted with his powers, entreated him to stay, offering him every inducement that wealth, power, and dignity could supply, but the alchemist resolutely refused. It being decreed, he said, that he should never repose till he had discovered the philosopher's stone. He set out accordingly the same evening, and was murdered by some thieves in the deserts of Syria. His biographers give no further particulars of his life, beyond mentioning that he wrote several valuable treatises on his art, all of which, however, have been lost. His death happened in the year 954. Avicenna Avicenna, whose real name was Eben Sinna, another great alchemist, was born at Bacara in 980. His reputation as a physician and a man skilled in all sciences was so great that the Sultan Magdal Duleth resolved to try his powers in the great science of government. He was accordingly made Grand Vizier of that prince, and ruled the state with some advantage. But in a science still more difficult, he failed completely. He could not rule his own passions, but gave himself up to wine and women, and led a life of shameless debauchery. Amid the multifarious pursuits of business and pleasure, 
he nevertheless found time to write seven treatises upon the philosopher's stone, which were for many ages looked upon as of great value by pretenders to the art. It is rare that an eminent physician, as Avicenna appears to have been, abandons himself to central gratification, but so completely did he become enthralled in the course of a few years, that he was dismissed from his high office, and died shortly afterwards of premature old age, and a complication of maladies, brought on by debauchery. His death took place in the year 1036. After his time, few philosophers of any note in Arabia are heard of as devoting themselves to the study of alchemy. But it began shortly afterwards to attract greater attention in Europe. Learned men in France, England, Spain, and Italy expressed their belief in the science, and many devoted their whole energies to it. In the twelfth and thirteenth centuries especially, it was extensively pursued, and some of the brightest names of that age are connected with it. Among the most eminent of them are Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. The first of these philosophers was born in the year 1193 of a noble family at Longen, in the Duchy of Newburgh on the Danube. For the first thirty years of his life he appeared remarkably dull and stupid, and it was feared by every one that no good could come of him. He entered a Dominican monastery at an early age, but made so little progress in his studies that he was more than once upon the point of abandoning them in despair, but he was endowed with extraordinary perseverance. As he advanced to middle age, his mind expanded, and he learned whatever he applied himself to with extreme facility. So remarkable a change was not in that age to be accounted for but by a miracle. It was asserted and believed that the Holy Virgin, touched with his great desire to become learned and famous, took pity upon his incapacity, and appeared to him in the cloister where he sat almost despairing, and asked him whether he wished to excel in philosophy or divinity. He chose philosophy, to the chagrin of the Virgin, who reproached him in mild and sorrowful accents, that he had not made a better choice. She, however, granted his request, that he should become the most excellent philosopher of the age, but set this drawback to his pleasure, that he should relapse, when at the height of his fame, into his former incapacity and stupidity. Albertus never took the trouble to contradict the story, but prosecuted his studies with such unremitting zeal, that his reputation speedily spread over all Europe. In the year 1244, the celebrated Thomas Aquinas placed himself under his tuition. Many extraordinary stories are told of the master and his pupil. While they paid all due attention to other branches of science, they never neglected the pursuit of the philosopher's stone and the elixir vitae. Although they discovered neither, it was believed that Albert had seized some portion of the secret of life, and found means to animate a brazen statue, upon the formation of which, under proper conjunctions of the planets, he had been occupied many years of his life. He and Thomas Aquinas completed it together, endowed it with the faculty of speech, and made it perform the functions of a domestic servant. In this capacity it was exceedingly useful, but through some defect in the machinery, it chattered much more than was agreeable to either philosopher. Various remedies were tried to cure it of its garrulity, but in vain. And one day Thomas Aquinas was so enraged at the noise it made when he was in the midst of a mathematical problem, that he seized a ponderous hammer and smashed it to pieces. He was sorry afterwards for what he had done, and was reproved by his master for giving way to his anger, so unbecoming in a philosopher. They made no attempt to reanimate the statue. Such stories as these show the spirit of the age. Every great man who attempted to study the secrets of nature was thought a magician, 
and it is not to be wondered at that, when philosophers themselves pretended to discover an elixir for conferring immortality, or a red stone which was to create boundless wealth, that popular opinion should have enhanced upon their pretensions, and have endowed them with powers still more miraculous. It was believed of Albertus Magnus that he could even change the course of the seasons, a feat which the many thought less difficult than the discovery of the grand elixir. Albertus was desirous of attaining a piece of ground on which to build a monastery in the neighborhood of Cologne. The ground belonged to William, Count of Holland, and King of the Romans, who for some reason or other did not wish to part with it. Albertus is reported to have gained it by the following extraordinary method. He invited the prince, as he was passing through Cologne, to a magnificent entertainment prepared for him and all his court. The prince accepted it, and repaired with the lordly retinue to the residence of the sage. It was in the midst of winter, the Rhine was frozen over, and the cold was so bitter that the knights could not sit on horseback without running the risk of losing their toes by the frost. Great, therefore, was their surprise, on arriving at Albert's house, to find that the repast was spread in his garden, in which the snow had drifted to the depth of several feet. The earl, in high dudgeon, remounted his steed, but Albert at last prevailed upon him to take his seat at the table. He had no sooner done so than the dark clouds rolled away from the sky, a warm sun shone forth, the cold north wind veered suddenly round, and blew a mild breeze from the south, the snows melted away, the ice was unbound upon the streams, and the trees brought forth their green leaves and their fruit, flowers sprang up beneath their feet, while larks, nightingales, blackbirds, cuckoos, thrushes, and every sweet-song bird sang hymns from every tree. The earl and his attendants wondered greatly, but they ate their dinner, and in recompense for it Albert got his piece of ground to build a convent on. He had not, however, shown them all his power. Immediately that the repast was over, he gave the word, and dark clouds obscured the sun, the snow fell in large flakes, the singing birds fell dead, the leaves dropped from the trees, and the winds blew so cold and howled so mournfully, that the guests wrapped themselves up in their thick cloaks, and retreated into the house to warm themselves at the blazing fire in Albert's kitchen. Thomas Aquinas could also work wonders as well as his master. It is related of him that he lodged in a street at Cologne, where he was much annoyed by the incessant clatter made by the horses' hoofs, as they were led through it daily to exercise by their grooms. He had entreated the latter to select some other spot, where they might not disturb a philosopher, but the grooms turned a deaf ear to all his solicitations. In this emergency he had recourse to the aid of magic. He constructed a small horse of bronze, upon which he inscribed certain cabalistic characters, and buried it at midnight, in the midst of the highway. The next morning a troop of grooms came riding along as usual, but the horses, as they arrived at the spot where the magic horse was buried, reared and plunged violently, their nostrils distended with terror, their manes grew erect, and the perspiration ran down their sides in streams. In vain the riders applied the spur, in vain they coaxed or threatened, the animals would not pass the spot. On the following day their success was no better. They were at length compelled to seek another spot for their exercise, and Thomas Aquinas was left in peace. Albertus Magnus was made bishop of Ratisbon in 1259, but he occupied this see only four years, when he resigned, on the ground that its duties occupied too much of the time which he was anxious to devote to philosophy. He died in Cologne in 1280, at the advanced age of eighty-seven. The Dominican writers deny that he ever sought the philosopher's stone, 
but his treatise upon minerals sufficiently proves that he did. Artephius. Artephius, a name noted in the annals of alchemy, was born in the early part of the twelfth century. He wrote two famous treatises, the one upon the philosopher's stone, and the other on the art of prolonging human life. In the latter he vaunts his great qualifications for instructing mankind on such a matter, as he was at that time in the thousand and twenty-fifth year of his age. He had many disciples who believed in his extreme age, and who attempted to prove that he was Apollonius of Tyana, who lived soon after the advent of Jesus Christ, and the particulars of whose life and pretended miracles have been so fully described by Philostratus. He took care never to contradict a story which so much increased the power he was desirous of wielding over his fellow mortals. On all convenient occasions he boasted of it, and having an excellent memory, a fertile imagination, and a thorough knowledge of all existing history, he was never at a loss for an answer when questioned as to the personal appearance, the manners, or the character of the great men of antiquity. He also pretended to have found the philosopher's stone, and said that, in search of it, he had descended to hell, and seen the devil sitting on a throne of gold, with a legion of imps and fiends around him. His works on alchemy have been translated into French, and were published in Paris in 1609 or 1610. Alain de Lille Contemporary with Albertus Magnus was Alain de Lille of Flanders, who was named from his great learning the Universal Doctor. He was thought to possess a knowledge of all the sciences, and like Artephius, to have discovered the elixir vitae. He became one of the friars of the Abbey of Citeaux, and died in 1298, aged about 110 years. It was said of him that he was at the point of death when in his fiftieth year, but that the fortunate discovery of the elixir enabled him to add sixty years to his existence. He wrote a commentary on the prophecies of Merlin. Arnold de Villeneuve. This philosopher has left a much greater reputation. He was born in the year 1245, and studied medicine with great success in the University of Paris. He afterwards travelled for twenty years in Italy and Germany, where he made acquaintance with Pietro d'Apone, a man of a character akin to his own, and addicted to the same pursuits. As a physician he was thought, in his own lifetime, to be the most able the world had ever seen. Like all the learned men of that day, he dabbled in astrology and alchemy, and was thought to have made immense quantities of gold from lead and copper. When Pietro d'Apone was arrested in Italy, and brought to trial as a sorcerer, a similar accusation was made against Arnold, but he managed to leave the country in time, and escape the fate of his unfortunate friend. He lost some credit by predicting the end of the world, but afterwards regained it. The time of his death is not exactly known, but it must have been prior to the year 1311, when Pope Clement V wrote a circular letter to all the clergy of Europe who lived under his obedience, praying them to use their utmost efforts to discover the famous treatise of Arnold on the practice of medicine. The author had promised during his lifetime to make a present of the work to the Holy See, but died without fulfilling it. In a very curious work by M. Longueville Harcouet, entitled The History of the Persons Who Have Lived Several Centuries and Then Grown Young Again, there is a receipt, said to have been given by Arnold de Villeneuve, by means of which any one might prolong his life for a few hundred years or so. In the first place, say Arnold and M. Harcouet, the person intending so to prolong his life must rub himself well, two or three times a week, with the juice or marrow of cassia, moelle de la casse. Every night, upon going to bed, he must put upon his heart a plaster, 
composed of a certain quantity of oriental saffron, red rose leaves, sandalwood, aloes, and amber, liquefied in oil of roses, and the best white wax. In the morning he must take it off, and enclose it carefully in a leaden box till the next night, when it must be again applied. If he be of sanguine temperament, he shall take sixteen chickens, if phlegmatic, twenty-five, and if melancholy, thirty, which he shall put into a yard where the air and the water are pure. Upon these he is to feed, eating one a day, but previously the chickens are to be fattened by a peculiar method, which will impregnate their flesh with the qualities that are to produce longevity in the eater. Being deprived of all other nourishment till they are almost dying of hunger, they are to be fed upon broth made of serpents and vinegar, which broth is to be thickened with wheat and bran. Various ceremonies are to be performed in the cooking of this mess, which those may see in the book of M. Harcouet, who are at all interested in the matter. And the chickens are to be fed upon it for two months. They are then fit for table, and are to be washed down with moderate quantities of good white wine or claret. This regimen is to be followed regularly every seven years, and any one may live to be as old as Methuselah. It is right to state that M. Harcouet has but little authority for attributing this precious composition to Arnold of Villeneuve. It is not found in the collected works of that philosopher, but was first brought to light by a M. Poirier at the commencement of the sixteenth century, who asserted that he had discovered it in manuscript in the undoubted writing of Arnold. End of chapter 4, part 1